Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Uh, can't fault your theatricality. <laughs> this is well, this is the podcast where uh, you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, for the purposes of this particular podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. And I insist that's, that you that's do. That's my, my nom de plume when it comes to letters episodes. Like your nom de lettre. My what? I don't know. Nom de letters. Your name letters. <laughs> sure. Anyway, this is the podcast where you write in to letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, you say whatever you want. You can uh, ask us questions about mm-hmm. movies or the industry or film history. You can ask us silly things, getting to know you questions. You can take us to task for reviews you think we got wrong. Uh, all It's all on the table, really. This is your yeah. show. You get to tell us what you want us to talk about. We don't have time to read every letter, so we try to not dilly-dally right up at the front. Uh, so without further ado, away we go. Whitney, tell us about our first letter. Uh, here's a letter that comes from Jack. Hi, Jack. Hi, Jack. Uh, dear the two W's. That's us. That, that mm. actually took us a while to figure that out. I remember once, uh, we're going to have a, an aside right away. Uh, well, <laughs> you and I once, uh, very briefly did the scripted video program. We did a scripted video program. We each had different lines of dialogue and I was writing them for the sake of brevity uh, w and W. So W mm. will say this line, and W will say yeah, this it, line. It, it didn't occur to you that our names begin with the same letter. I got shockingly <laughs> far into the script uh, because I'm a doofus. Mm. But anyway, moving mm. on. Uh, on the latest episode of Cancel Too Soon, you mentioned that you were unable to find the 2007 series Drive anywhere, including bootleg sources. I would therefore like to inform you about my un- my usual source for TV series that everyone has forgotten about that you might not have heard of. Google. Drive has been available on Daily Motion since June 2018, which is a fantastic place for forgotten TV series because they don't have the same copyright bots as YouTube. If you're looking for another series there, I recommend Three Pounds, a medical drama starring Stanley Tucci that is such a gigantic ripoff of House that it's hilarious. And even if YouTube ignores shows of the studio... uh, Ignores shows uh, of the studios uh, that the, ch- the studios don't care about. Uh, I've watched Buddy Farrow, a detective noir parody starring Dennis Farina and Frank Whaley. Smith, a heist drama starring Ray Liotta and Simon Baker. And Push Nevada, a mystery series that had a real-life cash prize. All right, we've uh, been looking for that one for a bit. I've watched them all on there, and there are plenty I've never even heard of. Anyway, I figured this would be a useful source for any listeners who want to watch along with you. So I think it would be ben- it would benefit them if you read this email on We've Got Mail to let them know. Also, I like it when you read my emails. Sincerely yours, Jack. Hi, Jack. Uh, well, first off, thank you very much. And yeah, it was a Daily Motion was a service. Daily Motion, yeah. Daily Motion is a competitor to YouTube that nobody uses as much as YouTube, and as a result, it flies a lot of stuff under the radar. And we've used it before to uh, look up and find a variety of uh, shows. Mm. Uh, if we're canceled too soon, our podcast where we review TV shows that lasted one season or less. Um, some of the shows that we review on Cancel Too Soon are available on DVD or on streaming services, but we are also trying to find the stuff that wasn't popular enough to get that treatment. Mm-hmm. And so services like Daily Motion, or sometimes YouTube, just whoever owns the rights to it doesn't give a crap, and you can find this stuff on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're grateful to everyone who posts this stuff, because otherwise these a lot of these shows would be lost forever. Um, in the case of Drive, funnily enough, uh, Drive was unceremoniously dumped onto Tubi. 
not that long ago. Uh, and as a result, it's actually the next episode of Cancelled Too Soon because we just discovered, hey, Drive is here. It just it just showed up. And some of the things we've been sort of uh, eyeballing in the periphery to, to, and hope they do show up on streaming. And wouldn't you know it, sometimes it happens. So. Yeah. And when we say we've been looking these things for, these things for years, mm. we don't mean we're looking for them literally every day. No, and, we're, we're it's, it's not so passionate a hunt that we're... Yeah occasionally I would uh, like some of the shows I really wanted to cover mm-hmm. like the edge or Sam and Max. It's like, Oh, those things will never show up on DVD. Well, thanks to a helpful listener. Mm-hmm. We did have access to the edge. Mm-hmm. And uh, thanks to some weird fluke of the shout factory. I think it was the shout factory. Thanks. So. We, we got access to uh, Sam and Max freelance police. Yeah. We, we, those, the, those were shows that I wanted to do. Yeah. And I was keeping an eye out for the shows that we're especially passionate mm-hmm. about individually and that we can't currently find. We, look around for every once in a while. Mm. Uh, but everything else is on a list and uh, we, we look for things when we can. Uh, we recently actually a, a show we've been looking for, for a while. We recently found out is finally on DVD UPN's deadly games, mm. which is about Christopher Lloyd is a video game villain who wanders into the real world and does video game villain stuff. I can't wait to review that, but we will have to <laughs> at least for a little bit, but we are getting that one. Mm. Um, so thank you very much for your help in helping us find some of those shows. Some of the shows you mentioned were either not on our radar or we had looked for them in a bit. So we're grateful for mm-hmm. that. We will definitely check those out on Daily Motion. And yeah, if you want to recommend shows for Cancel Too Soon, I assure you we have a very long list. However, mm-hmm. there's always something we didn't know to put on it. I don't, yeah, the, the the history of television is, is mountainous and uh, we are constantly... Chipping our way through that mountain with the, the knitting needles that we've armed ourselves with. Yeah. So thank you very much. Mm. Uh, what's our next letter? Our next letter comes from Moses. Hello, Moses. Hi, Moses. Um, uh, hey, Bibs and Granny, uh, which is a reference to FX2 because of your blue hair. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, regarding your letter about swarms of crabs. Uh <laughs> We had a listener write in uh, asking about swarms of crabs. Uh, the listener in question uh, had a phobia of crabs. Yeah, they're and weird, not, creepy monsters we, if you think about them. We, they, they are, yeah. They're just weird undersea bug things. Yeah, with like with armor-like skin and sharp pincers. Pincers, and, and they don't really have like Eyes a, that poke out. I was about and, to say, that they don't have like a... I'm creeped out by some creatures that don't have a centralized face. <laughs> like, uh, and crabs we, we, don't really have we, facial features. We can't uh, relate to those like mm. as... Em- Em, uh, empathetically, yeah. as we can with creatures who have faces that we sort of look at them and go, "Oh, it looks kind of like my face." Like yeah. so, Luca is adorable, yeah, like but a like cat or you know, dogs yeah. have really kind of expressive faces, so yeah. people sympathize with dogs. Yeah, that's and why. Well, like when they made to, the movie, yeah. when the, when they made the movie Finding Nemo, they realized they couldn't put fish eyes on either side of the fish because it was just harder to relate to them. So they pushed the eyes of the fish to the mm-hmm. front. So yeah. that human beings would be able to look at that and more quickly recognize human features. It's one of the uh, big problems with uh, John Favreau's version of The Lion King. Yeah. He decided to make them really photorealistic uh, and animate them like animals actually look. And as such, we have birds that are like sort of cocking their heads at weird angles so they can look at the animals they're talking to. And it just look it, like... They, they, they look like there's, it. yeah. They, What's they, weird is they're, they're moving in these really unnatural ways in certain scenes. What, what freaks and, yeah. me out about that thing is it's supposed to be all like photorealistic. Oh, they look like real cats. And I'm like, I've seen real cats. Real cats have personality. They actually emote more than yeah. these creatures do. I don't know how the hell they did that one wrong because they actually, the Jungle Book looked fine. So I don't know what the hell. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, um, so, but they asked, them, why aren't there more horror movies about swarms of crabs? There are hmm. horror movies about swarms of frogs. 
slugs, mm. birds, why Worms, not crabs? Killer shrews, even. Yeah. Um, Anyway, regarding the letter about swarms of crabs, it reminds me of the scene at Dr. No. The title villain was originally trying to kill Honey Rider, played by Ursula Andress, by strapping her down and letting crabs eat her. Hmm. Uh, the set for that was built at Pinewood Studios in England and was only briefed and brief glimpsed, uh, brief, briefly glimpsed in the film Sans Crabs. Why did they take away the crabs? Because they didn't have big ass crabs in England. So they had a whole bunch of them shipped over from the Caribbean in specific, especially refrigerated boxes to keep them dormant on the long trip. Unfortunately, it basically put them into some kind of hitherto unknown hibernation cycle, which took ages to undo. The crabs were placed on the set and just sat there. <laughs> they had to scrap the whole idea. Ah, uh, poor crabs. I hope this, I, I hope this story puts a, a smile on your face. And yeah, here's a, a, a photograph <laughs> that was of the crabs of Earth. Ursula Andress tied down next to a bunch of sleeping crabs. <laughs> oh my god, that's adorable. <laughs> yeah, those crabs are just hanging out. Those crabs yeah. aren't doing anything. There's one crab so, that's like several feet away. So there, there was a plan. In, <laughs> we in were Doctor so No, in, in Doctor No, in, the, in James, it been an James iconic Bond would have had a, a crab monster scene. Oh and yeah, god, sadly it hilarious. wasn't done. That is hilarious. Uh, well, thank you for that wonderful mm. anecdote. I had no idea. Uh, here's a letter from Corey. Hi, Corey. Hi, Corey. Uh, greeting Bibbs and Rocketmeister McCool. Um, aliens are on course to enter Earth orbit in about six hours. I, uh, wow, you'd think that would have been on Twitter. Uh, uh, yeah. Thank you for letting us know. <laughs> While digitizing the world's most comprehensive film catalog, you accidentally create a one-way AV uplink to the approaching spacecraft. Okay. All right. Good to know. Uh, quick, there's no time to question this contrivance. <laughs> I wish that was yeah. a line of dialogue yeah. in more movies. Yeah. There's no time to question these, these plot contrivances. Um, what films do you show the aliens before they arrive to ensure that first contact goes as well as possible? Ah. Uh, I have my own ideas, but I want to influence how I don't want to influence how you approach the question. So I've blacked them out in the postscript. And yeah, if you look at the letter, it's all redacted. Mm -hmm. um, thanks for the interesting art thoughts. Signed, Corey. That is tricky because if you think about it, First thing you want, you definitely want something that will show humanity off in a positive well, light. However, you don't want to show something that shows humanity off in such a positive light that once they get here, they're so disappointed they just leave. Well, here, here's here's my thinking. What perspective do the aliens already have on us? Mm -hmm. An mean, outsider's are, are perspective, they, yeah, no do, doubt. Do yeah. They, have they just sensed that there's life on this this planet and they know nothing of our ways or our culture? Mm-hmm. In that case, show them anything. It doesn't matter. It's going to be just well, nonsense and noise to them. Well, that's my concern, is that they're not going to necessarily know how filmmaking works. They're not necessarily going to understand the visual language of film. Mm. There's a lot of films that are so rapidly cut together that if you've never seen a movie before, if you've never seen this kind of art before, mm. it might just be off-putting and, like, you know, it'd be like my dad listening to heavy metal. He just doesn't know what to do with it. You know, yeah. just too much. Um, so I would want something that's a little bit more reserved, I would want something that speaks well of humanity without overselling it. Okay. And I think one of the first things that would occur to me is Tree of Life. That's a great choice. I think you get a great sense of man's understanding, and, and I use man in the old-fashioned respect, and I'm going to not mm. use that anymore, of humanity's mm. uh, understanding of its own existence, its own place in the universe. Uh, you get a great uh, a sense of just what it is like to just be a person, be a child, mm. understand the complexities of adulthood. It doesn't show adults in a particularly positive or negative light. Mm. They're both. Uh, you get a sense of grand spirituality. 
and you also get a sense that we really don't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> like it's all we get. Yeah, it, we we're, have, we're just as lost in this vast sea of time we, as we everybody. Are, we are guided by our feelings mm-hmm. and our emotions and our beliefs. And there, if there is some sort of objective reality, we don't pay it a lot of mind. Uh, and I think Tree of Life is the first thing that comes to mind. It's probably not the best, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, if I'm trying to uh, show a very human experience in a really simple way, I think I'm going to want to go for like something that's a little bit more... Uh, I guess the right word would be pure. Something a little bit more directly artistic. Mm. Not something that's concerned that concerns itself with uh, the things you and I just sort of know from a lifetime of consuming films. Mm-hmm. You know, characters and beats and chronology. Mm-hmm. I'd want something a little bit more straightforward. Like than a documentary? That. So, or well, like not, a... not a documentary, but there, there'd be no dialogue. Okay. There'd be no dialogue. There'd be no, uh, not a whole lot of like concepts to deal with. They mm-hmm. would sort of muck it up. I'd be tempted to show them like a dance film. Mm-hmm. I'd be tempted to show them uh, maybe an opera. It doesn't really matter what they're saying. Just sort of the art of it is what's going to take over. Okay, I see that. Uh, or I'd show them the red balloon. The red balloon um, is a great pick. Uh, it's because the red balloon, it, we get, we're, a lot is communicated in the red balloon without the use of dialogue. And it's a very simple conflict that even a really young child could understand. Mm-hmm. A young boy has a balloon. It might be alive. Yeah. It waits for him outside of school. He's happy to see it. And I think all of the emotions on that child's face are really, really easily read, or at least could be very simply explained. That well, he, he is sad in its absence and happy mm-hmm. in its presence. I think the other thing that's cool about that one is the red balloon. If you've never seen the red balloon, mm-hmm. it's about a boy and a red balloon that's following the kid around. Mm-hmm. And the red balloon has it's basically alive, but without being like a cartoon, like mm-hmm. talking or anything. So, um, and some of the special effects in that movie, I still don't know how they did it. It's quite impressive. It's mm. quite impressive. And what I, other thing I like about that is that movie also teaches empathy for inanimate things. It, right. it teaches empathy for the other in a very abstract way. Mm. And I think that's a great lesson to learn is to look at every single aspect of the world around you and as though it matters see, and has see feelings. It, see it as alive. Yeah. yeah. And I think when you look at the whole world that way, you look at not just not just mm. other people, which we should be doing that too, but just literally everything, plants, uh, the, the, the knickknacks. That uh, affect our lives when you look at them as though as though they're all precious. Mm. Uh, it changes your worldview. Uh, so that's a great pick. I love that pick. Okay. Um, our our, our uh, would you like to hear I would. What, what they chose? Okay. I would love to. Um, from an admittedly limited reference pool, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <gasps> Don't actually show what we think of aliens. I, that was the, <laughs> yeah. the whole movie. Explorers yeah. is about that. I love that movie by the way. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Casablanca. Interesting. Uh, how the Grinch Stole Christmas from 1966. Mm, that's interesting. Pat. And The Wizard of Oz. Total runtime six hours eight minutes, but maybe I can make it up by skipping the credits, <laughs> or find, uh, or hope that the aliens hit a lot of red lights. I wanted, uh, so yeah, we we have six hours to show them mm. this film. I wanted to hope uh, a hopeful first contact movie to show how much we hope to meet aliens mm. and elide how much we fantasize about killing them. <laughs> the other items are meant to present a wide, mostly flattering range of human experience. I hope I didn't doom us all. Yeah, I, I think I, you're fine. I, no, I, 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 a part of me would be, would be kind of impish and want to show them something like Mars Attacks, just to see if what I can. Would you en- do that? Just so I can encourage them to like recarve Mount Rushmore. It's like, oh, this is the way we greet people. 
Don't, don't, don't do that. It's, we it's we inhale their nuclear explosions That's just to make idea. our voices go funny. There's a there's a wonderful movie directed by Joe Dante. It mm. used to be very popular. It's not spoken of as mm. often as it used to be, which is a shame because I think it's interesting. Mm. I haven't called, seen it. You've then. never seen Explorers? Okay, no. so the plot of the Explorers is this, and I'm going to give away a bit at the end uh, because I think it's a selling point, and it's it's like a 40 year old movie. So, mm. um, but it's about a group of kids, and they all start having the same dream. And the dream is telling them to build a spaceship and go into outer space. So they do. Mm. Out of common household objects and stuff they find in a junkyard. They build a spaceship and they fly into outer space. It's great. Wonderful score. Super adventurous. Um, and when they get to outer space and they find the aliens that have been sending them messages in their dreams, they find out that the aliens wanted children to come to see them because they are scared shitless of humans. We have seen your movies. <laughs> <laughs> we have seen your movies. We saw War of the Worlds. <laughs> we know what you think of us. And we know that you are terrified and you're going to kill us all. So we're just going to stay the fuck away from Earth. And if we make contact with anybody, we'll be the people least likely to kill us. So for me, my thought is let's not sh show these visitors from beyond the stars what our expectations are shall we <laughs> maybe scale that shit back if we show them anything maybe a star trek yeah i was about to say so show them yeah. a couple episodes of like choice yeah. episodes of next generation era star trek and yeah you might more be diplomatic a inclined yeah. ones like this is this is what we want to be if you show, don't mind yeah, show them arrival if you're going to show them an alien invasion even, that's not bad even then the aliens don't turn out so well but it is about our struggle to save them yeah it's about how we are textured people, and yeah. maybe maybe not all of us are to be trusted, but some of us are. I think I'd want also maybe movies that sort of show off other aspects of art, like maybe movies that have a lot of music in them. Mm -hmm. Might be a really nice. Uh, well, that's why I said, like a, a dance film, something oh, no. that is just artistic. I mean, which, yeah. is why, which is why I actually think one of the better suggestions uh, in that email was The Wizard of Oz, because in addition to uh, demonstrating a lot of different aspects of the artistic scene, but also. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of iconography in it that can be used to clearly convey ideas when the first meeting mm -hmm. happens. Darmok and Jalad of <laughs> somewhere over the rainbow. Darmok, yeah. There you go. Like mm -hmm. I understand somewhere the rainbow means hope, right? Okay, cool. Like so, we can we can give us something to work with, you know, like a, a common framework. Bunny and Jordan with basketball. <laughs> We're not showing them space. <laughs> <laughs> because then they're gonna think that they think that, that we think they're gonna kidnap us all and force oh. us to work in their amusement parks. Oh, oh, how kooky! If that was our like universal, oh god, cultural pivot point was Space Jam. That'd be a nightmare. I mean, they made another one. People like that movie for reasons I'll never understand. What Lucy's back in action? No, Space Jam. Oh yeah, well, wait, I don't. Maybe the new one's good. I haven't seen it. Yeah, gotta love for the possibility. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe it could yeah. surprise us all. I, I I am amused that uh, Pepe Le Pew was excised from the movie because Pepe Le Pew is is uh, creep. Yeah, he's a creep he, in his cartoons. He's a creep, and they didn't want to have that kind of character. But then they decided to put the droogs from A Clockwork Orange in the background of one shot. Yeah, like, the droogs are way worse than Pepe Le Pew. Yeah, I'd rather have Pepe Le Pew in the movie. <laughs> those frankly. are our two options. Yeah, one of them is they're, they're both bad. They're both like not a good. Pepe, they're Pepe both not is, good characters yeah. to put in a kids movie. But like, yeah, Pepe Le Pew is a creep. But have you seen A Clockwork Orange? They That's, do much worse things in that movie. Yeah, it's really. Weird choices were made. Yeah, anyway, anyway yeah. it's fun to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Uh, here's a letter from RJ. Hi, Hi RJ. RJ. Um, hello, Bibbs, and the artist formerly known as Whitney Seibold, but who's now named Brockmeister McCool. There you go. Um, I wanted to tell you about a, a criticism that I can't stand. 
to be honest, there's quite a few phrases and tropes that I think we can do without, but one that really pushes my buttons is when people are referring to a film, and this is often a film by a director who's more unique, less conventional, like, say, David Lynch, and uh, critics will say, people wouldn't love this if it weren't directed by X. Ah. Oh. Um, yeah, they probably wouldn't because it wouldn't be the same movie. <laughs> um, yeah, fair. I understand a lot of directors carry with them a perception of assumed quality, and often that is perpetuated by their fans, cough Zack Snyder. Uh, mm. But the specific criticism suggests that whichever director they're referencing has no style, skill, or impression left on that particular film. Uh, to say no one would like it if they didn't direct it is going on the assumption that the film doesn't change when the directors change, but it bu- that bugs me to hell. Perhaps you could mm. argue that we are call it an imitation or a ripoff, but I think that's a different argument entirely. Uh, pausing here for a second. Mm. Um, yes, uh, critics and audiences do take perceptions into the theater with them. Yeah, we, do. we can't uh, help it. And uh, we, when, we try not to let it mm. tint our perspective too much, especially if we're like a professional critic, but mm. you can't help it. Yeah, uh, and there are some directors that if I'm going to see one of their movies, I kind of assume it's going to be a masterwork. You know, okay. when I'm just, I, I haven't seen all of Bergman's films, but, you know, if I'm going to pop in a Bergman film, I'm going to assume it's going to have some big ideas in it and that it's very mm-hmm. well directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, That's how I feel about uh, Kurosawa. Yeah. Yeah, or Kurosawa, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I love the, the Japanese director, Hirokazu Koreeda. I love his movies. He made a movie last year that I didn't like. In fact, I think it's really dull and slow moving and kind of stinks. Mm. And it was called it, this really nondescript title. It's just called The Truth or La Verite. Mm. And uh, he made it in uh, French and English. Um, it, it sort of threw off my perception a little bit because I have to be honest with myself. Did, would I have liked this if it were directed by somebody else? Well, if that material were directed by somebody who's a little bit better suited to it, perhaps. But I think I know what you're referring to in this letter. Uh, I, I, let's listener. finish the letter, but I feel like, I feel right, like there's um, a different angle that the yeah, well, terminology is um, sometimes used at. But let's, let's move on. Right, um, I also dislike the phrases, you have to admit and you can't deny <laughs> because, no, I don't. And yes, I can't. <laughs> Because if you're following either of those up with an objective fact about the film, I don't have to admit to shit. (laughs) (laughs) So I was wondering, are there any criticisms or review tropes that you'd happily see the backside of? And uh, which ones would you have you been guilty of in the past? Well, Mm. I don't have any specific examples. I'm sure that I've used all of these at some point in my time reviewing cinema. And I'd like to look at that as evidence of my growth as a writer and as a film critic. Uh, Speaking of which, thank you so much for all your work. Every day you make me want to be a better film critic and a film lover. All the best, RJ. Well, that's an honor. Thank you so much for that. Um, To get to the first thing, so the criticism, and there's a lot of criticisms and a lot of uh, phrases and terminology and ideas in criticism that get used all the time. Mm -hmm. Because, let's be honest here, uh, criticism... Uh, evolves changes with time with people with the art itself but on some level you are reacting to similar stuff all the time Mm. (laughs) you're looking at stories Mm. you're looking at characters looking at cinematography so sometimes you're gonna go back to a similar phraseology a similar mindset when it comes to approaching something and sometimes you're gonna say things a similar way Mm. that's not inherently the worst thing ever but it does encourage all of us to be creative and that is why so many critics use puns that's exactly the reason it's boring to say it the same way over and over again and puns are amusing if you're staring at a screen long enough like um justin chang is one of the modern like he he is he is first of all he's just a great critic but he's also sort of the heir apparent to gene shallot in terms of (laughs) using puns in movie reviews yeah and just on twitter just for fun yeah and like 
they're so bad that they're good. Uh, like, I was I was like, going for that title for a while yeah, back like, when I was reviewing. It's like, oh, oh, Justin Chang, how, how dare that? I mean, that's good, but shut up. I, my, my proudest moment <laughs> as a pun writing uh, critic was for a review of the Robert Zemeckis film The Walk. Okay. Uh, which was a dramatization of a documentary called Man on Wire uh, about a man who uh, snuck Philippe. into the top of the World Trade Center. Yeah, Philippe Petit was his name. Thank you. He snuck to the top of the uh, into the top of the World Trade Center like a heist movie, and strung a line between the World Trade Center towers and did a wire walk between them. Mm. And it's uncanny. Just, and just the, as perfor- performance yeah. art, just the, for fun. The yeah. documentary is amazing, but the damnedest thing about the documentary is no one actually filmed him doing it. So the movie exists to show what it was like to be on that wire, and yeah, it's actually pretty good. It's not an amazing movie, but it's a pretty good movie. If, if Unfortunately, not a lot of people got to see it like in the 3D IMAX, oh, the way Zemeckis that, shot it. Oh, uh, that and, was yeah, a great experience. And, and your heart will leap out of your body. It's just, it's exhilarating. Yeah. There's like shots just looking straight down, and the 3D is so deep. I was very, very proud of the title of that review. I'm uh, my review. Twin Towers, wire walk with me. <laughs> Shame on you. That's pretty good. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, but uh, but to yeah. your original point, uh, the, the the expression uh, people wouldn't like this movie if blank didn't make it. What that I think presupposes is that there are certain filmmakers who have liking Mer Bergman for mm. you, or like Kurosawa for me. Uh, pa- their audiences following, yeah. they have a passionate following they're on they're, they've been consistent enough amongst their fan base of whether big or small mm. that people are willing to give their work a chance even mm. if it's uh, atypical Ill- weird ill-advised yeah. maybe and they're maybe more willing to consider well maybe this is good Whereas if you just saw a movie by some random person and it was the exact same movie, you might not be willing to immediately leap to the possibility maybe this is good. No. You might just say, yeah. you might just go off your first gut reaction. And I think that's something that critics are responsible for, is to look at every movie, regardless mm. of who has made it, and immediately say to themselves, what if my initial reaction isn't, isn't right? Mm. What if my initial elation is missing something? And what if my initial dismissal is missing something? Well, well, am, am I looking at this movie through the right lens is a question that I think every mm. critic should ask themselves at least a few times about every film. Yeah, and, uh, and if every critic's going to be guilty of this, especially uh, really long-working, well-versed critics who have a a good idea as to a filmmaker's larger body of work. Mm -hmm. They kind of know a little bit what to expect, so they have a lot of more context to put what's in that film uh, into. Uh, So you could go into seeing uh, a Herzog movie. If you weren't at all familiar with Herzog, it might be a little off-putting or alienating. If you've seen a lot of Herzog movies, you now have an entire filmography you can fit it into. You have this context yeah. that you'd write into your review because you have to. Yeah. You have that context. You can't pretend you don't. Uh, as such, you're going to talk about it differently. And mm. uh, in terms of like the big pop entertainments, like a Zack Snyder type of filmmaker, um, there are people who are willing to, I suppose, do the same thing for Zack Snyder. Yeah. Uh, they, they are willing to go into this big action film and look at it as a Zack Snyder film rather than just a, an action film that could have been made by anybody. It suggests that the audience has faith in the filmmaker's abilities. Mm. and that to, it, to the point of forgiving a lot in terms of putting it into a broader context. Yeah, forgiving a lot or mm. at the very least making the assumption that if there's something in here that I find strange, it's in here for a reason. Mm. And again, you should always question that. But we're all allowed to be fans, even critics. Like the idea that critics have to remain objective is nonsense. Mm. Critics have are responsible for questioning, but we do have filmmakers that we just like, don't we? Mm. Uh, filmmakers who push our buttons, filmmakers who consistently make films that entertain and, and please us and excite us. 
And every once in a while, they fail us too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, regarding your question of uh, criticisms that I'm, I'm ready to go with that, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll name one. And I consider this fundamentally redundant. <laughs> uh, and honestly, I, I, I feel like this is just a filler expression, and I'm mm-hmm. sure I've used it. It's not perfect, but <laughs> yeah, almost nothing is perfect. There's only like maybe a handful of movies that I would even consider applying the word perfect to. Mm. There really is. Perfection is unattainable. Nothing is perfect. So what you're saying is, if if it's not perfect, but is you're assuming the audience must think that perfect is possible here. Yeah, it's yeah. not. We need more nuance than that. Just bringing then, that up is pointless, I feel. Uh, the phrase well shot means nothing. Uh, I see that yeah. in reviews sometimes. It was really well shot. Well, I mean, so I could see it. I mean, yeah. of course. It's I, in focus. I, yeah, I, 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 I can see what's going on on the screen. If, if you want to make some sort of uh, more nuanced comment on the film's cinematography, maybe bring that up. Yeah. But just saying well shot is is a meaningless phrase. I, I agree. Um, I also think it's redundant. If, yeah. you, if you need to mention the cinematography... You need to mention the cinematography because it's that good, mm. in which case it deserves more more clarification, or it's that bad, in which case it's obviously not well shot. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, yeah. If it's not well shot, bring it up. Not well shot. Couldn't mm. see what was going on. Uh, you yeah. saw um, the Slender Man movie and you said it was so murky you couldn't see anything in yeah, it. Yeah, it's really uh, badly lit. I've, yeah. I've seen a lot of movies it's, it's like dim. that where everything, yeah. Yeah, I was just like, I couldn't make out there, what was going on. There on were screen. jump scares in that movie that I had to take on faith. Yeah. Like the music implied <laughs> that there was a jump scare. And I'm like, if you say so, I don't know. Like, I feel that way about like the last act of the film Pacific Rim. It's like it's a giant monster and a giant robot, but it's at night in the rain with lightning flashing well, and they're a, underwater in yeah, one point. Yeah. And, and then at one point they're not underwater and I don't know how they got out of the water. It's like yeah. I can't see it. And I, I saw it in 3D, so I have the, the sunglasses on in the theater as well. Which, so it's robbed dark, the screen of a lot darkens of light, the yeah. image even further. Yeah, it's like I, I can't tell what's going on here. Yeah. I'm sure you put a lot of effort into whatever the hell is going on. There's a lot of there's a lot of these things that we use in our uh, criticism that is basically just placeholder. Mm. Um, well shot, you're right. Means nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, um, most things are at least competently photographed. Yeah, some, so it's basically yeah. you didn't need to put those words in there. It's a bit of a way. And I'm, I know I've used it. No, I used no. it because I felt it was necessary to discuss the cinematography, but I didn't have anything meaningful to say about it. Mm. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, I either have something meaningful to say about it, or if I don't mention it, it's not worth mentioning yeah. because it hits baseline competence and never goes up or down much. That's fine. That's not a critique. That's not a negative. But it wasn't worth highlighting. Mm. That's what that's my philosophy. Yeah. Uh, some other uh, critical critical pet peeves of mine. I hate the phrase "visually stunning." Uh, yeah. It's just overused. Uh, it, there's so many. There's so also, many yes, synonyms and, and for yeah, pretty. Like, stunning, yeah. stunning. Like like really, yeah. you're like stunned in your seat because it's used yeah. so often. Um, I'm not one of those uh, asshole sticklers who thinks you should reserve the word masterpiece for like one or two films a generation. No, that's stupid. Uh, that which that's really stupid. But definition I, of a masterpiece but is I, it's an it's an example of you have mastered this. And every yeah, filmmaker, um, a filmmaker has more than one. Great, they're a great um, filmmaker. That doesn't and, mean only get one. And I think it's an appropriate appropriate to use word uh, if you're writing a film review and you truly feel that way use it fine yeah. uh, don't don't be stingy yeah. uh, Spiel, but, I think uh, Scorsese's made at least half a dozen films I would it, consider yeah, sure sure uh, yeah but it is overused, I think. Um, in fact, yeah, uh, back in the day, uh, the LA Weekly would compile how many reviews used it yeah and it's like like 150 films were described as masterpiece it's like mm. uh, the, some of those were good but you yeah. know 
critics tend to lean on the word a little too heavily, especially when you get uh, like uh, in the Twitter age, the, all the early reviews, people sort of wander out of a film immediately reach for their films while the credits still rolling yeah, inside they wanna, the theater. And they they want to yeah, share their thoughts right you know, away. This yeah. film was a new, it was a new masterpiece because they're still a little high on it. Maybe they yeah. did love it a lot. Maybe and, they did. Uh, maybe this is on, maybe it's, I'm sure, yeah, I'm so, sure the sentiment is genuine. It just, maybe it'll fade a little bit tomorrow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, another thing I'm, uh, uh, I could, I could really do without is, um, I just lost it. <laughs> ah, I just lost it. It was so it was yeah. so on point. You would have been like, "Yeah, Bibbs, you got a good point." Maybe it's something. Oh, I remember now. Uh, declaring any movie to be one of the best or worst movies of the year, unless the year is at least half over. Like at least, if it's not at least midsummer, I don't think you're allowed to say yeah, well, that. When we it's see way a, too much going on. When we see a legitimately great film in like the month of March, yeah, we'll say so. We'll qualify our statement. Yeah. I'll, I would be surprised if there were ten films better than this. I, I so, something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, I, I, if there's, I, yeah. what my my thing it, is, if that, it's that good, is if, thinking of a top ten list, which is yeah. arbitrary anyway. I, but yeah, what I will say is, this is the what I have come to say is, uh, if we get ten better films than this this year, mm. what a great year it will be. Yeah. Or if we get if we get ten worse films this year, we are in trouble. <laughs> and that's a phrase I've used a lot. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, it's only March, so I can't call this one of the best of the year yet. But um, yeah, but or, it's quite good, and I'm gonna uh, uh, the yeah. Mitchells versus the Machines. I think we used that. It's like yeah. it's too early to call it one of the best films of the year, but well, it, it probably st- will end up on my list yeah. at this rate. If we're still thinking about it at the end of the year, then yeah. perhaps uh, yeah. maybe not. Maybe it'll vanish from our minds. Of, of the films I've seen so far this year, it seems most likely to end up on a top ten list. Okay, but Fair. we'll see. Um, so those are some, and uh, we we've all seen things that just that just. Stick in our crawl. Stick in our crawl. Like we're just sick of we're just sick of hearing the same word over and over again. And this is true for this is interesting. It's actually true for films as well, where you see hundreds of movies a year, and you start getting a little tired of tropes more than if you only watch a half dozen. Exactly. And this is something that film critics do. Sometimes we're a little ahead of the curve in terms of what like is a pet peeve for us now. Like, like, oh, I've seen a dozen of these this year. Well, the person reading it may have only seen two. I've seen a dozen of these in my life. Yeah, it's like if. If if you're yeah, if you're not watching all of these films at, a, at such a constant rate, uh, yeah, film critics and I've said this before, we we long for novelty because we've seen it all and we yeah. we're get we get used to trends a lot and recognize trends a lot more quickly. Um, once you start noticing the phrase "Let's do this," oh, it never goes away. <laughs> it's, I, in, it's it's everywhere. It's in every movie. It's, every in, it's movie, even in good movies. Every trailer yeah. has "Let's do this." Let's do this. It means nothing. Mm. It means whatever we do next. We're gonna do that. A- actions begin. I-, I would love it to just be replaced. Actions begin. <laughs> just replace it with that. Instead of let's be- let's do this. Actions begin. Okay. And they all rub their hands and jump onto the car or whatever it is they're gonna do. I'm writing that down. I'm yeah. gonna tweet that. <laughs> actions begin. I will now. credit you with it. Um, you. But yeah. Anyway, so those are some of our examples. I'm sure everyone else has a few. Yeah. Uh, if there are any particular critical pet peeves you have, uh, mm. things that you see people do all the time in criticism. Uh, let us know. We'd actually be love to hear them. Maybe we can explain why they exist. Some of them might be there for a reason. Some of them Somebody. might just stink, and we just want to know that they're annoying, and maybe we should stop doing them. Some of them have, might have definite origin points. Yeah, sometimes and they're important, they're, and people just they just they're, they're or maybe they're used wrong or they're overused, and but it's worthwhile to discuss them. Mm. So we'd be very curious about. It. I um, love talking about the art of criticism, and it doesn't get to come up very often. 
mm. uh, because we're so busy just doing it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always eager to talk about it. So right. let's go on. Um, Moving on. Speaking of criticism, here's somebody who's uh, calling me out for something. Oh, uh, this comes what from, did you do? This comes from Johnny Starlight. Um, oh, hi, John. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Mr. McCule. Um, I'm very behind on your podcasts. Uh, 14 more to listen to on the critically acclaimed feed before I'm caught up. Thanks Sorry. for listening. Uh, but I recently listened to the episode where we reviewed the movie Bad Trip with Eric Andre, and I had to throw in my two cents on the gorilla scene. Fair warning to our listeners, uh, the scene in question was a scene that attempted to comedically depict uh, sexual assault. Uh, it was obviously fate, but uh, it's a difficult conversation that we had when we reviewed the film, and it might be a difficult conversation now. We will try to handle it as uh, respectfully and uh, delicately as possible, but we're about to talk about this. So uh, future uh, letters in this episode will not be about such heavy topics. So feel free to skip ahead if this is not something you want to listen to right now. We totally understand. Uh, it's featured in the trailer for the film, and it's the reason that I will not be seeing this movie ever. Uh, I'm a survivor of sexual assault and have been living with PTSD for more than half of my life now as a result. I'm sorry. And that shit just isn't funny. Uh, I by no means speak for every single survivor out there, simply for myself. But I cannot and will not support anything that treats that subject matter like a joke. In your review, you mentioned that they showed during the credits that people were, quote, cool with it. But I know from experience that sometimes when you see experience or relive something traumatic, you might be you might act like you're doing fine for any number of reasons when you're really not. Perhaps uh, you're just so in shock that you can't even process what's happening or has just happened. And I imagine that having a camera present and guys saying it was just a prank, haha, would only complicate that. Uh, for example, maybe some people didn't want to look like an asshole. Maybe they were offered money if they signed a release and said they were fine. Or maybe no one wanted to out themselves as a survivor who might have, be having a distressing mental health episode when they just wanted to see animals at the zoo in a culture where such things are still stigmatized and where sexual assault is still dismissed or treated like a joke, as is the case in this movie. And of course, that was just the footage that, were sh that was shown. We don't know... Uh, if there wasn't if there was anybody who wasn't okay and they simply were left out of the movie saying well they looked like they were cool with it doesn't mean anything to me and even if any everyone there was cool with it I'm still not it's a bummer and that sounds like the rest of the movie was good sounds like they uh, should have left that scene on the cutting room floor uh, I'll also add that I noticed both of you have been a lot better about mentioning your reviews when sexual assault or sexualized violence happens on screen and are discussing it in a movie and I really really appreciate that warning so please keep that up um, yeah there was uh a, a really, it, I think they were. They thought they were being funny because it was really kind of a cartoonish scenario. Mm -hmm. But we don't know how cartoonish of uh, things look anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, you you might think that you're doing something sort of silly and broad when really it's actually well, just as hurtful as it, as it could be in real life. Again, th that's a movie where the mm -hmm. whole premise of the movie Bad Trip. Uh, it, it, was, it was a largely a prank movie. It's a prank movie yeah. and it's loosely connected with the narrative and it's basically um we're telling a story but mostly we're going around in public and we're doing silly things like oh what if my character got so drunk in a bar mm. that he projectile vomited but to a cartoonishly voluminous degree. Yeah. Uh and that would be something that would certainly be upsetting to watch but it would also just be kind of ridiculous at the end of the day people would be like oh you got us. Uh, but there's one scene also, in the movie... Ma I, making somebody thinking you're barfing is yeah. not, not so bad a problem. You see, there, yeah. there are different levels here, and there are a mm. variety of different comfort zones at different levels, and mm. I think there are many jokes in that movie that are wonderful, and then there's that one scene at the zoo, which is just... A, it's, it's uncomfortable, because it's a topic that, for a lot of people, just is not funny at all. Mm. There's nothing funny about it. It's too close to home. It's not cool. 
Uh, and then, but because of that added level where you realize that a lot of the people who were in that scene were not in on the joke from the get-go, mm. my sympathy is actually increased because I don't know what they're feeling. Yeah. And you make a point that, yeah, they do go out of their way to show that people were cool with it. But as Johnny Starlight pointed out, that's the footage that they showed. Yeah, that's people. I, I that's people. All of a sudden, now there's a camera in your face. You thought this was funny, right? And a lot of people are just like eager to get out of an exchange when there's a camera yeah. in their face, regardless of context. Yeah, the, the 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 footage we saw was oh oh okay oh what a relief you know that that was sort of the yeah. the footage they showed in the movie because it's a comedy film they want to keep it light. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is that the I, scene doesn't need to be yeah. in the movie. There's, I, not, I would, there's nothing important in that scene. No, no. You can I cut would, that completely, and I think that would have been a wise move. It's it's off-putting. It's a dark scene. It is off-putting. Uh, and I, I was a little flip in my description of it. And for that, I want to apologize just yeah. openly. Uh, I would hope that the filmmakers were behaving ethically enough mm-hmm. that if they were trying to play this prank and they actually did encounter somebody who openly expressed horror and discomfort that they would cease doing the prank and they wouldn't have put it in the movie. That would be nice to hear. I don't and know if I, that's true. And so I can, in leaving it in the film, I am making an assumption that they were behaving ethically, but mm. I don't know that. I don't yeah. know that they were behaving ethically and they would also need to be confronted really openly and have an ethical response to that Yeah. for, for that to also function. So and these are all assumptions that I'm making that yeah. could not be true. Yeah. For all not, we know. For all yeah. we know. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's a topic mm. that we've, you know, People have been having this for a long time. There have been a long history of jokes about really uncomfortable topics in the uh, the media for a long, long time. And uh, some people have found them funny, while some people have most definitely not. And there's been this definite attitude of, oh, lighten up. And yeah, well, what it's, but what it's a matter of, it really is people saying, this is in poor taste. Mm. This makes me not want to laugh. This is something that is actually uh, very traumatizing to me. Mm. Please stop doing that. And so what we're talking about is something very, very simple and natural, which is that we need to respond to the taste of the people that, that are our audience. Mm. We need to understand that there are people who have feelings about this mm. stuff. And yeah. there are certain yeah. things you just wouldn't joke about because it will... It's a, it's disrespectful, and b, the mm-hmm. people at home. There's an excellent chance they're not going to enjoy that. Yeah. And I, I feel like, and uh, if they are enjoying that, you have to question maybe why, yeah. <laughs> because uh, it's bad. Bad yeah. trip didn't handle it very well. I I do think that comedy is actually a, a generally speaking, comedy mm. uh, is. I'm, I'm not going to say it's a, a safe place to discuss extreme things, um, but it's. Uh, it's a, a place, it's like a, a realm where we can experiment a little bit and see where the limits of our conversation are. And a, a lot of comedians have spoken very eloquently about how comedy is actually kind of a good way to see where we stand on a lot of things yeah. uh, that we can't have in other genres or with other uh, media. Yeah. Comedy, specifically stand-up comedy. Some comedians use that as a complete excuse just to be assholes. Yeah. It's like, oh no, I'm just being edgy. No, you're being horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not edgy, you know. It's uh, and uh, you know, George Carlin said that shock humor is is not a phrase he liked. He just liked surprise, yeah. surprise humor. You don't expect to hear something like that, which really is the source of a lot of humor. It's an yeah, unexpe- and, and, uh, humor is usually unexpected truth. Exactly, that's, and, that's and, frequently what a joke. And George Carlin has made some incredibly ribald jokes in his day, uh, and you know, in um, 
in the aristocrats he tells oh, and, and just just that's that boy, is, is that ser- a documentary that, that would is, be hard to sell right that now that is a it? series of like sick sick jokes but i think that gains a lot of uh leeway from its context and yeah, well it's, it's is, presented uh, as what you're going to hear this in is this like documentary this is like is, backstage stuff that you don't ordinarily yeah, get to hear this is, this is uh, comedians trying to push yeah. the boundary as much as they possibly with, can with other comedians yeah. i think that's an important and, note. And, but at no point in that in that documentary i'm not saying remembering it wrong and it's like it opens with this and i hope mm-hmm. it doesn't but like at the memory serves in that documentary they set you up and say here's what here's what awaits you in mm. the documentary the aristoc the aristocrats mm. uh because it is fucked up <laughs> yeah and it's gonna really push the boundaries of good taste and probably cross it many times and, and yeah does. And, and i think i think experimenting with taste is something comedy should be permitted to do and it absolutely uh, but and, the yeah, audience and, needs to be on board with it exactly. and that's the line uh, and that's I, the trick and, and, you need, and, the audience needs to know yeah. here's what we're doing today yeah, and that's where bad trip lost me yeah is is there a way to do that in bad trip maybe there was i can't think of what that would be mm-hmm. maybe just not have that scene maybe yeah. have more vomit yeah <laughs> vomit was more fun he can just be attacked by the gorilla he doesn't need to be yeah. violated like mm. you just mm. it's it's a, it's a weird choice considering if, the rest of the movie yeah. was actually very well thought out in terms mm. of what was acceptable, what was not, what was pushing the boundary, what was crossing it. It's just this one scene that just for me led, it was such a thud and just ruined my whole day. Honestly, I was just like, I was really enjoying it. (laughs) I decided to put that in there anyway. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I don't know. It's like you meet a new person and they're really nice. And then they just say something so repulsive. You don't want to talk to them anymore. Even though everything else they said was something horrifying. Yeah. And it's just, it just really pissed me off. Um, There's more to this letter. Oh dear. Um, I'm sorry. I thought we were done. uh, Well, she changes uh, the subject. Okay. Uh, to end on a much lighter note, uh, I don't remember which podcast this came up in, but the animals in Pompoko are not are not raccoons; they are tanukis, aka Japanese raccoon dogs. As are Tom Nook and his kids in the Animal Crossing games. This is why uh, the power up that gives us su- gives Super Mario a raccoon looking suit is called Tanuki Mario. Uh, however, uh, because Westerners don't know what tanukis are, uh, the word is often just translated as raccoon. Yeah. Tanukis play a big role in Japanese folklore as supernatural beings and tricksters. Tanuki Mario's abilities to spin and fly are related to this, as are the shape-shifting and the large scrotums of the tanukis in Pompoko. Uh, and lastly, again, I don't remember which podcast this came up in, but for uh, more on the history of Hydrox and Oreos, uh, if this is something you're interested in, then I highly recommend the Food Theorists episode on YouTube hmm. that talks about exactly that, called The Dark Secret of Oreos. Yeah. They do state in the episode that, yes, because Oreo had better marketing, that's how they were able to surpass and eventually destroy their competitor and predecessor, Hydrox, although Hydrox has come back in recent years, and she even put a link. Uh, all the best, hmm. Johnny Starlight. Johnny, um, thank you so yeah. much. Um, Johnny's been a, a long-time listener, and mm. they're just... We, we love them dearly, so yeah. thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, and I'm totally going to watch that Hydrox video, because we yeah. were talking about how Oreos were actually the rip-off item of a pre-existing cookie called Hydrox, mm. which is not as popular now. Uh, and uh, regarding Raccoons versus Tanukis, we were talking about Pompoko and how it's kind of a weird film, and uh, yeah, we don't really have tanukis in America. Like, mm. I don't think I don't I don't think they're just they are here. Um, I think they're just not native to North America. I could be wrong about that. They, but I grew up around raccoons. We okay. have raccoons aplenty uh, where I grew up. Uh, so they look a bit like raccoons. My brain defaulted to raccoons. They are not raccoons in the Studio Ghibli film Pompoko. Mm. They are tanukis. Um, Thank you for that. I think. However, I think in the. Uh in the dubbed yeah. version, mm. they're referred to as raccoons. See, that's the thing. I suspect that's the, probably what And I happened. think in the subtitled version, they're referred to as tanukis. Yeah. 
I definitely yeah. saw the dubbed version first. And, and Tanuki might be plural already, so I apologize. If yeah, it, we, we're, we're clearly behind on this. So, mm-hmm. uh, in any case, thank you so much for taking us to task. And thank you so much for taking this task in general. We're trying to be better people. Yeah, we're trying yeah, to handle I'm, these things better. And I'd, we're constantly I'd, learning. We always mean well, but that doesn't mean we always yeah, and, do well. So, and thank if, you. If you call us out in a letter and I don't read it on the air, it's not like I'm trying to hide anything. I actually do see those. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I go through the letters. And if you're going to take me to task for something... Uh, that, that Whitney's in charge yeah. of the letters. That's actually what it is. I yeah. actually so, don't look at them all the time. So I, I, I have heard you, but yeah, I... Again, I can't read all the letters. Yeah. Um, here's a letter from Max. Hello, Max. Hi, uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, you are the only two critics I have actually heard talk about queer cinema. Oh, my goodness. That's um, not... I mean, thank you, but that's not good. That's, uh, Dave White and Alonso Duralde, please. Please. Go to the Linoleum Knife podcast. Um, uh, B. Peterson over at Screens Margins. Yeah, is, uh, is actively recruiting other queer critics and queer voices to talk about film. Yeah, and there are plenty of others besides, mm. but that's that's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, uh, I am a pansexual, non-binary person. Uh, only my close friends, and now you, know that. I, get, I digress. I always look for new and interesting queer cinema to watch, but always stumble upon the same things. What should I be watching? Mm. Also, I love both of you as critics. Nobody takes me out of my struggles of my everyday life quite like you two, you two do. And I always look forward to your podcast. I also have recently subscribed to your Patreon. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you so much. So I cannot wait for some extra material from you too. Thanks for all you have done for my mental health over the last year specifically, Max. Max, um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for, well, for confiding. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah. That means a lot to us. And I'm, th- this is a welcoming space. And yeah. uh I know that's a phrase that's bandied about a but, lot, but, but, but it's, it's important, it's, I think. It's, it's, it's important, important, to know it's important that, like, that we say that. There's, there's, um, there's no, like, weird, you know... Stigma that, or discomfort or anything Yeah, like, like there's, there's, there's no, like, you mm. know, oh, you get, in order to enter the critically mm. acclaimed club, you have to have seen this list of movies. No, mm. uh, just no, thank no. you so much for joining us. Uh, as to what to recommend, um, good queer cinema that isn't talked about a lot anymore. Uh, I just tonight on Ovid, uh, a streaming service I love, mm-hmm. uh, watched the early films of Cheryl Dunier, uh, who did The Watermelon Woman, which, A, watched The Watermelon Woman. That movie was great. I um, just learned about that one, thanks mm-hmm. to B. Peterson. Mm-hmm. And that movie is fantastic. Yeah, The Watermelon Woman is really, really, really good. And Cheryl Dunier, the director of... Uh, was making a lot of video films uh, in the early 90s when uh, she was in her 20s, I believe. Uh, and boy, how did, did that scratch my 90s itch? <laughs> like the, the attitudes, the way people talked, uh, the fashion, and yes, even the video quality brought me back to this very uh, specific time in the early 90s when a certain kind of art and voices were being amplified and uh, queer cinema was getting a lot more frank about its queerness. Mm. Uh, And there was this kind of boom of queer cinema uh, in the indie scene uh, back in the, the, 90 in the early nineties. Yeah. Uh, So that's a really good place to start. The early films of Cheryl Dunier. Uh, last year was a really good film for queers, a uh, good year for uh, queer cinema. Yeah, you were even mm. particular. I, 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 unfortunately, I missed quite a few of the ones that you saw. Yeah. But you said you were like you were just there was a, discovering them every week. Yeah, like. there was a, there were a lot of good queer films. Um, and then we danced was really good. I think mm. that's a George, that's a Georgian film. Uh, there was a really sweet lesbian version of Cyrano de Bergerac called The Half of It that was on Netflix. Uh, I really liked this really low budget indie called To the Stars about two uh, teenage girls, one of whom might be falling in love with the other uh, in, I think it's 1950s Oklahoma, mm. uh, and and many more besides. Um, yeah, there, there's just a lot of really wonderful uh, queer queer cinema just constantly coming out. It's just a matter of where to look for it. You have to dig for a lot of it. Uh, 
Um, I'm, I mentioned this in our review of the Mitchells versus the machines, but I'm a little frustrated with the way a lot of mainstream films are kind of queer. Mm-hmm. Like they'll have a queer, queer in a way that can yeah. be easily edited out. Exactly. If they felt it was like, like there's a character that might be coded as queer, but mm-hmm. they only make it explicit, like maybe in one line of dialogue yeah. and they can like make a few uh, cuts. And all of a sudden that character could be read as straight in, in mm-hmm. another universe. Um, yeah. So no, that's it's like, that, like that could, could, could you imagine at the end of the Mitchells and the machines, if they, she mentioned her boyfriend, what a betrayal that would feel like. I, yeah. Like, and they, they could have easily done that. Is the All thing. they have to do is like, change yeah, one line change, of dialogue. They need to change one word. Instead of saying, are, name, are, you and, are you and Jade a, a real item now? Yeah. If they had said Steve. Yeah, you and, you and Josh are yeah. a real item. It's like, no, wait, no. no I, what? I, it would have felt wrong, right? Yeah, it it yeah. wouldn't have made any sense. Yeah. Like, I, at all. I, I think TV Tropes has a term for that. It's like the, the straight gay character. Like, mm. they're, they're revealed to be gay, but like their actual love life is not discussed in any detail whatsoever. So yeah, it's all, it's all, yeah. it's all just mentioned. It's not mm-hmm. actually like it, their, their, their love life isn't a part of, or, or even just their sexual identity. It's not considered important enough to put on camera. Yeah. And yeah. that's something that always stinks. Yeah. Now there's a way to add that information in a graceful sort of way, but mm-hmm. pretending that we're sort of sexuality blind just reminds me of this entire uh, era of, uh, well, again, going back to 90s cinema, mm-hmm. where a lot of uh, colorblind casting became really de rigueur. And we weren't going to mention any characters' races. Just all the races are getting along now, and we're going to kind of pretend that racism isn't an issue anymore. And we've learned 20 years, 30 years later, how harmful that messaging can be. Yeah, It's supposed to be very, very positive. We're not going to discuss it, but at the same time, by not, not confronting it, is, it, is, it. Is, is yeah pushing it off to the side. And I feel like yeah. that's what we're going through with a lot of of queer cinema right now. Um, we're, we're mentioning it, but we're not talking about it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But yeah. But that said, uh, once you push past that kind of nonsense, you can find a lot of really interesting things in queer cinema going on in the indie world. I'm trying to think of what uh, we like recently we I recently covered. Recently. I'm sure if you listen to our podcast, you heard yeah. us talk about it. But uh, I am deeply in love with the film Born in Flames. Oh yeah, Lizzie Borden's, Borden's Born in Flames is awesome. Kicked my ass. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love that film. <laughs> that yeah. film is. I feel like that should be must. I think that should be like required viewing. Yeah, I yeah. really do. If, I if think you're in your twenties, watch Born in Flames. Oh my god, please. Oh, that was really cool. It's 1983. That yeah, movie came out. Uh, it, it feels was, um, so spectacularly ahead of its time. Yeah, like just was, absolutely just. Mm-hmm. You you say now that like that movie was like mm. made when it was made, and you'd be like. <laughs> no, there's no way they have, predicted that much. There's have, no, have there's seen, no uh, way. Have you seen Derek Jarman's Jubilee? No, we all okay. that was actually on a poll. We almost we almost um, reviewed that once right. for one of our uh, things. Um, yeah, another that's, film that's, that, that feels really similar. This kind of, mm. sort of like retro futurist scuzzy mm. uh, punk rock attitude that, that yeah. you find in Born in Flames. Uh, there's a really sweet movie uh, I liked. I was trying to make sure I got the title right mm. from uh, 2016, starring Jesse Plemons and Molly Shannon called Other People. Oh, I didn't see that one. That's a yeah. really, really, it's a tearjerker and it's a really, really good one. It's a Jesse Plemons plays uh, uh, a, a gay man whose mom is dying of cancer and he like spends like the last year of her life like living with her and her father. He puts his whole life on hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father, sorry. He puts his whole life on hold. Uh, and he, you see like just sort of the isolation that he feels being part of this sort of nuclear family unit again, but he's also just not dating and he's just lonely and repressed and 
Uh, and his, his mother is wonderful. Molly Shannon, I think, should have got an Oscar nomination for it. I think she's fantastic. Uh, but um, it's a really sweet film that is about a queer character, but it's not like... Uh, but it's about like... Um, um, I don't know. It's 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 about his relationship with his with his mom and his dad, and it's mm. such a wonderful film. And I like that movie a lot. And there was this brief moment where it seemed like it was going to make like a huge splash, and then people just kind of stopped talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of a bummer because I thought that was a really heart wrenching and sweet flick. Uh, well, so I'll, I do I'll highly to recommend check it. Out. Yeah, I haven't it's, seen that one. I, I typically do not gravitate towards films that make me cry, but that film made me cry like a baby. Oh God! I and deliberately I, seek those out. Are you kidding yeah. me? Oh, then you should definitely no, see I, it. I, I think you'd really I, like it. A lot. I, I want to be destroyed. Yeah. Um, there's a movie. I, I, I remember being really upset yeah. after seeing something like Marriage Story. It's like, yeah, come on, hurt me. Really, really yeah. put a bruise on my heart, and that it didn't was a little upsetting. No, I honestly was. I was a little disappointed in that one too. Yeah. I thought they pulled a lot of punches. Um... Let's see. There's an interesting film. I'm not sure it's like the best film in terms of how it portrays uh, polyamory. Uh, mm. But there's an interesting film uh, from 2017 called uh, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. Oh, yeah. It's which, um, about the creator of Wonder, of Wonder Woman. Yeah. Uh, mm. Well, the, the creators, actually. Mm. Uh, but uh, it stars Luke Evans, Rebecca Hall, and Bella Heathcote. And um, Luke Evans and uh, Rebecca Hall are scientists. And they actually invented... Like the first like lie detector test, mm. uh, and uh, but they also uh, recruited uh, a young research assistant who ended up becoming uh, part of their sexual romance, and they started experimenting with uh, BDSM, and it's all about how this very unconventional, especially for the time, mm. uh, relationship uh, directly influenced the creation of Wonder Woman, which they would go on to create. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are parts of that movie that are fantastic. There are also parts of it that I feel maybe mm. are going like a little mainstream in terms of like how they're portraying certain things in an mm. effort to sort of make it sort of easier to grasp onto from the outside. But um, I do think it's really good, and I do think mm. it deserved more attention than it got. It was came out like the same year Wonder Woman came out. It's yeah. kind of just. And there are a lot of uh, films they've probably heard of. Uh, oh, yeah. Fil- films like uh, The Favorite, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Call Me By Your Name, um, yeah. about uh, queer, gay, or bisexual characters. Um, you and I were both very high on The Handmaiden, the Park Chan Wook yeah, movie. Great movie. Um, that's, that's an intense film, but it's yeah, you've really good. Probably seen Moonlight. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you haven't seen Moonlight, yeah, that's great. Um, I really uh, recommend Tangerine from 2015. 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, which was, it was shot on iPhones uh, on the streets of Hollywood, but it was like the Hollywood that you don't usually see in movies and it's like incredibly authentic. It's like, oh, there's that donut shop up on Santa Monica Boulevard. Like you and I who are LA natives know exactly like which alleyways that thing was shot exactly. in. And uh, yeah, it's it's really, really authentic about uh, about the, the streets of LA and a certain kind of experience. Uh, I'm very fond of mm-hmm. Ang Lee's The Wedding Banquet. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, that's a great movie, and that was a movie that was a big sort of indie sensation when it came out, and then Ang Lee just started making bigger and bigger movies, and people stopped talking about The Wedding Banquet so much, but um, it's about uh, uh, a gay man uh, who uh, his parents are just eager to see him married mm-hmm. before they go, but they are from a very conventional uh, family, and uh, so he like has a friend who agrees to marry him mm-hmm. uh, just to sort of get the parents off of their back. But he's still gay. Like this, that's mm. not. It's not about that. So, um, 
and uh, it's got an ending that I just I really just thought was really incredible. Um, but uh, in, in a very very bitter mm. bittersweet way. Uh, so uh, that's a really really good movie that I used to be talked about a lot, mm. not so much anymore. Mm. I highly recommend it. If you're not exploring the works of Pedro Almodovar, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so, there you go. Pedro Almodovar, uh, will mm. will is just a treasure trove waiting to be discovered. If you're not if you haven't discovered him already, um, just. He is a banquet. <laughs> he, he's a banquet that's so rich you can't like mainline his movies. You have to watch one and then wait a little while. Just his films are so colorful and so emotionally rich. You kind of have to let them sit with you for a little bit. Uh, I'm trying to think of like other. Oh, well, and uh, one we uh, reviewed recently as part of our uh, Rocky Horror episode zero podcast mm-hmm. uh was scorpio rising oh, which is super important yeah. Uh, a, a, yeah an incredibly important queer film it's a short film uh that d- just used a lot of biker iconography and kind of solidified a lot of what we now call gay iconography uh mm-hmm. it's a film by kenneth anger uh, from the 1960s and it is quite good it's mm-hmm. an exhilarating watch it's very brief and a lot of popular culture will just lock into place once you see it. Yeah, you all of a sudden realize, oh, this mm. is why this is why we use pop songs in movies now instead of just mm. original songs yeah. and orchestral scores. Like but this is that's, why that's a big influence on yeah, that. This is why I associate this with this. This is you know right. bikers and queerness. Why how why are those together? Well, Kenneth Anger kind of did that. Uh, yeah, or at least or at least yeah. put that on camera. Mm. So. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really, really important and influential mm. film, and I highly recommend it. But in any case, there's a ton of uh, film critics out there who know way more about this subject than we do. Yeah, uh, well, and I, I, reckon... I could just make a lot more recommendations. Sure, but, uh, like, but you can. We uh, highly recommend yeah. checking them out, and we are so sorry that there are so few other film critics that you're following who mm. are making a point to discuss queer cinema. Mm. That stinks, and I'm sorry about that. That that needs to shift. That he's a dramatically um, shifting yeah. thing. And we're getting a lot more perspectives in yeah. film now. I think that's really, really wonderful. Um, hey, hey, wouldn't you know, Chloe Zhao is making more movies. Great. Cool. Uh, and I like her perspective. Mm-hmm. Give me more. Yeah. Give me, give me more. Give me broader perspectives. Yeah. Um, uh, a listener of ours and the, the founder of the Screens Margins, B. Peterson, pointed out that uh, the non-binary uh, gaze is something we're going to have to start thinking about, isn't it? Yeah, we talk uh, a lot about the male gaze the and the way that men the mirror at women and, how, and the female uh, gaze mirrors at men. And, and how, how men, and you know, even uh, gay men or gay women mm-hmm. t- do still tend to leer in a certain way. And yeah. uh, what will leering look like if it's made by an asexual filmmaker or, or a non-binary, non-binary yeah, filmmaker? What's that perspective going to look these like? These are whole visual languages yeah. that are not explored well enough that we understand the vocabulary yet mm. at least in the mainstream and we need that and that we're in an exciting time right now where we're these voices are given more mm. and louder uh uh i think i messed up my metaphor <laughs> these, these voices are being amplified more yeah, and, and thank goodness uh so it's all very very exciting mm. um and uh, yeah. Hmm. So anyway, I hope you enjoy some of those movies. There's plenty of other recommendations out there. Oh golly, yes. Uh, listen to Alonzo Duralde and Dave White. Yeah. Listen to B. Peterson. And um, yeah, if, if only we knew a critic who like programmed out fast. Uh, that's Alonzo. That's Duralde. Alonzo Duralde. <laughs> Alonzo Duralde was a programmer. I, I, like he he doesn't. I think he's like sort of works with them a little bit still. I actually don't know what Alonzo. It's does been a while since I've talked to him about it. I, I don't know yeah. how how actively involved he is right now. But yeah. yeah. Uh, but regardless, he knows a lot about it. I feel like I haven't talked to Alonso in a while. Yeah, he's, I, don't, he's, I don't see him a lot. He's the best. Yeah. 
Uh, mm. Alonso and Dave. Like, I listen to their podcast when I can. Yeah. Right, we have time for one uh, more. Here's a letter from uh, Name Protected. If okay. you don't, don't sign off your name, I'm not going to read it. Um, uh, Hi, Bibbs and Mr. McCool. I listened to a podcast that said that Darth Vader mm. is the best villain. Okay. I don't think he is, mm-hmm. but I'm biased because I don't really like Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose. All right. Uh, but I thought I would ask uh, the pros, who is a good original villain. Uh, thank you for everything you both do. Best regards, John. Uh, original as in not adapted from, like, not Dracula or not no, uh, or, or Hannibal Lecter. Iago or, or something. Yeah, okay, that's uh, fair. So, so invented uh, for uh, cinema. I'm going to say this right now. I actually think Darth Vader is a good pick for this. Um, mm. I think Darth Vader was uh, visually distinctive, instantly iconic. Mm. The performance is... Uh, larger than life, uh, James Earl right. Jones and the combination of David Prowse's towering uh, physicality just created a very indelible image. Uh, he's a figure who, in the initial version of it, was just this mysterious, powerful, <laughs> godlike being who was and just was evil. It, and we don't see his face because no. he's wearing that weird-looking mask. Yeah, and... so he's this element of mystery, and all we know is that he's a genocidal maniac who like works for an evil space wizard. Mm-hmm. And then, and then when you find out that like he used to be like a pretty good guy who like fell from grace, that gave his character a little bit, a little bit of depth, a little mm-hmm. bit of Shakespearean quality to it. And then when you see the prequels. Uh, kind, yeah, of, kind of ruins a lot of that. It ruins a lot of it because they're not very well-written movies. However, what I've come to appreciate uh, is that uh, the idea that Darth Vader was a troubled kid who was told way too early that they're the most important person in the universe and given way too much like uh, uh, slack and said a whole bunch of like really troubling things about how I don't think democracy works anymore. <laughs> Oh, Anakin, there's absolutely no way you will be instrumental to the downfall of yes. democracy. And it's kind I, uh, of, it just kind of talks about like the how. The one that like, gets me is like, I, I went to my home planet. I killed all these people. These women I, and like, children. I like murdered all these women and children. Like, I just killed them all. I was in this fit of rage. Great. Now we'll have the wedding scene. It's not like. like they got married and he, then he admitted to that. And no, so like no, she no. kind of stuck. Like and, she and knew then, that about him. And then, and then after they decided that, to get there's, married anyway. And I keep seeing like this stuff online about like, Oh, like, mm. Oh, from the early days of the clone wars back when Anakin was so innocent. I'm like, he had already slaughtered children. Like you, you made him a mm. mass child murderer. And then you gave him a kid show. And I understand that the kid show gradually details his downfall in probably more detail than the movies do. I haven't seen all of it. Uh, but you still gave Space Hitler a kid's show. <laughs> and there's something really weird about that. Um, and I think that's something, I think that's my problem with Darth yeah. Vader isn't that he's a bad villain. I actually think he's a great villain, but I think the emphasis on young Vader mm-hmm. uh, and like, oh, isn't it sad that he fell from grace has sometimes muddled the fact that the point is he fell from grace. The point is he's, he's a already genocide. fallen. The point is yeah. he's responsible directly or indirectly for the deaths of billions. Uh, not to mention slaughtering a lot of kids by hand on multiple occasions. Like, not just the once. <laughs> he did it twice that we know of. And probably more if there's stuff in the animated series I'm unaware of. He might have just been his thing. Um, so I think that's actually a pretty strong candidate, but I'm curious what other uh, well, original villains I'm, I'm much more interested in, like, okay, genocidal monster. Uh, yeah. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around that. A guy who will blow up a planet. Yeah, it's, it's hard it's to so, wrap your mind. It's so yeah. big, it's, it's kind of it's like huge, you can barely yeah. contextualize what, it. Yeah. Like what what Eddie Izzard said in one of her routines. It's um, uh, you you kill a hundred thousand people. We're almost saying, well done, well done. We can't even process yeah, that. Yeah, like, your, your your mind can't even handle it. Like you you killed a hundred thousand people. You must get up very early in the morning. Yeah. Uh, like, wow. So, 
well, that's fun in sort of a, a dramatic adventure kind of film because it yeah. sort of raises up the stakes. This huge, yeah. and, sort of and also there's a bit of distance. Yeah. These, this is an outer space thing, and it's yeah, totally yeah. fictional. And so I'm, yeah. I'm much more interested in the banality of evil, okay. where uh, like everyday kind of evil can inform the way we actually interact with each other in our lives. Um, I can't choose Patrick Bateman because it comes from a, a novel. That's um, the film American Psycho. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can choose, like, Aaron Eckhart's character from In the Company of Men. Oh, my God, that guy's evil he, as hell. Yeah, he's just this... Oh, good This amoral misogynist, oh. like, actively misogynist, seeks to harm women kind yeah. of character. And, and a similar character, the one played by Jason Patrick and Your Friends and Neighbors. Yeah, they're both Also monsters, this incredibly yeah. evil character who yeah, is just sort of sliding guy. through ordinary society with the darkest of possible thoughts having ordinary conversations, thinking that everything, this is what normal life is. That's the kind of villainy that really makes me like legitimately uncomfortable. Agreed. Yeah. No, I think it's a great way. A part of me goes for the slightly larger than life because that's something that I think movies handle better. Yeah, like, like yeah. you could do a story. Well, like, I, like you could I, do I love, the company I love, a book. I love like, Iago, and yeah. uh, one of the great things about Iago is, you know, people ask, "What is his motivation? Mm-hmm. Why is Iago so hell bent on destroying Othello's life?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does give a few excuses throughout the course of the play. I'm jealous of him. I don't like him. Uh, I'm a racist man. Whatever, mm-hmm. whatever his motivation is, it never rings really convincing to me when you read the actual text of the play. Mm-hmm. That he is wicked mm-hmm. makes him dramatically powerful. Yeah. If we give him an excuse, if we kind of try to humanize a character like Iago too much, that robs him of a lot of his dramatic power. Yeah. And I think if we give him this sort of peerless, like, closed off mind, sort of steel trap of a mind that is just already snapped around itself and we're not going to be able to penetrate any longer. Mm. Uh, that's what makes him really terrifying because mm. now he's capable of anything. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's like the difference between a, you know, a, a serial killer who actually like has a motivation or some kind of trauma that led to their serial killing, which you see in like a lot of the silence of the lambs knockoffs uh, and somebody like Michael Myers, who is, almost semi supernatural in how yeah he's how just the embodiment of evil he's yeah. the embodiment of evil yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a yeah, good yeah, so yeah there's so I, I find a character like I guess he's not even really a character like Michael Myers yeah uh, much more interesting because of how ethereal uh, the character's evil is yeah uh, in terms of like a cinematic villain but when it comes to actual villainy that makes me uncomfortable somebody who is just out in the world yeah. Enacting their evil in casual ways because mm-hmm. that's the way the world looks to them uh, is the kind that's really gonna yeah like, gonna make me the most like in terms of like horror movie villains like I'll, I'll look at someone like maybe the stepfather which I don't think is based on a book mm-hmm. uh, but Terry O'Quinn plays a guy who has been promised uh, you know the conservative nuclear family we was promised him in the 1950s was promised him in the Reagan 80s and every time he hooks up with a family uh, he tries to like marry into a family with a woman, a single mom. Uh, and they end up not meeting his Ozzy and Harriet idea of what family life should be. He slaughters them and then finds another one. And Terry O'Quinn is... In the minds of these slashers, it's like any kind of uh, transgression they feel is worthy of murder mm-hmm. 
is never as bad as murder. <laughs> it's yeah. not like they're murdering other murderers. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, it's like absolutely like ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So like the, but in his head, it is in his head. He has been promised a lie. He's been mm-hmm. promised this absolute lie about what I, I've talked about this a lot in therapy. Like there's this idea of like what life should be. Mm-hmm. And it's not about what things should be. It's about, we should be asking ourselves, not what, what we should be doing right now. How much money should I be making? How far along should I be in life? Mm-hmm. At what point should I be married? And we should be asking ourselves, what do we want? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do, are our do, hopes? What do, is, what, yeah. what, what do I want for my I, life? I, that's, that's, that's not a, about a big, a big part of that is, well, like I do want, like I, I, I want to be making a million dollars a year. So, right. But the but thing but is I'm that, not, but, but so, like yeah. we have this idea that we have to have it a specific way. Mm. And if we don't have it a specific way, that means we're doing it wrong or that we have been wronged. And that's not helpful. Mm. And I actually find a character like stepfather, like really potent in that regard. But for me, I really do gravitate towards sort of larger than life creations, mm. because I think that's my, some of my favorite parts of cinema. And, uh, as a result, if I were to pick a villain besides Darth Vader, who actually, again, I think is a good pick, mm. um, I would say Gojira. <laughs> I think Gojira is... I, I, I like him much better once he's a hero, but... Fair right. enough, but for me, for me, the purest mm. version of Godzilla is the villainous Godzilla, or at the very least, the... Uh, destructive force of destructive nature. Destructive force right? of nature of Godzilla. Like, I wouldn't say the... I, I wouldn't call, like, the tornadoes and Twister the bad guys, but I think because Godzilla mm. is a creature... You can call Godzilla the villain of the original Gojira, and to a different extent, I think Shin Godzilla is the other one that really nails this. But um, yeah, Godzilla is representative of he he's the living embodiment of the destructive force unleashed by a Western society yeah. and Western military might, but specifically nuclear weaponry, and that destructive power is so gigantic and so life-changing or even death-changing for, like, Mm. the planet, that it cannot be personified by a person. There's no guy who Mm. can represent the atomic destruction. It's got to be a gigantic, unthinkable, fire-breathing monster. It's like a a building that is alive. Yeah, there's something, and it's something, it's so titanic, it's so gargantuan, Mm. and... It has to be dealt with. Like you can't just say, like, well, we had we gotta let him get it out of his system. Like, no. We have to do something about this. But it's so enormous. It requires so much sacrifice. It requires so much compromise. It requires so much uh uh so much uh, attention and time and money and resources that it's difficult to rally people around a solution for something as gigantic as that, but it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think Godzilla is the ultimate example. Although, again, later examples of the character does become more heroic or at least anti-heroic, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the version. But uh, for me, the purest version is him as the villain. Fair. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair. Yeah. Whatever. Not, not that purity is something to be, to be valued. It's just I feel like that was the original creation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of the, the version that makes the most sense in my mind. Oh, okay. I like the idea of Godzilla as like Earth's bouncer. That's a fun idea. But <laughs> it's also a hell of a lot weirder than this monster represents an atomic bomb. I can like grab my head around that a little bit faster I, than Earth needs a bouncer. I, 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 part of me would really love to see a Godzilla movie where he just has like an oversized Metallica tank top. Where he's just like wearing it. <laughs> holding a Godzilla-sized beer. <laughs> he sees Mechagodzilla coming and he crushes out this gigantic cigarette and, like, <laughs> starts lumbering towards him. Yeah, like, 
that that's how I picture Godzilla. <laughs> so, ah, shit, here's another one. All Fuck. Right, Come on. Hold All my right, volcano. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just hold my volcano. Hey, Mothra, hang, hang on a second. Got to take care of this fucker. All right, <laughs> let's go. What's up, Gidra? You again? <laughs> Gidra, behave. We're doing this. All right, we're doing this. Here we go. <laughs> King Gidra gets a few shots in. Goes, I was like, I'll be, give me a minute. I'll be back. <laughs> you don't understand, man. I used to roadie for Nickelback. <laughs> I think we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's. I think once, I think Dude, once we hit Nickelback, the podcast I've, is over. I've, look, I've roadied for bands that died before Nickelback formed. All right, I'm gonna. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it right now. This is gonna be like our like Rule Fifty Seven. If once you hit if Nickelback, we, the podcast is over. Well, I also like that I staged King Geeter as a Nickelback fan. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. If you want to write in to a future episode of We've Got Mail, the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And as you can tell, uh, everything is on the table. Yeah. It can be silly. It can be serious. It can be very serious. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, again, we don't have time to read everything, but we read as much as we can, and we always want to make sure we have a real conversation about every single thing that people write in about. Thank you once again to everyone who wrote in. Really amazing allotment of, of emails this week. Just mm. excited to hear your thoughts and everything. Um, if you want to follow us along and you don't want to write us an email, you're, of course, more than welcome to follow us on Twitter. We are at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. We can get a ton of exclusive shows about stuff like Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards, Disney, commentary tracks, and mm. more. Uh, you can also vote for future episodes of our various programs. Uh, that is patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. A very big shout out to all of our patrons without whom this show and all of our other shows would be completely impossible. We just, we, as you can tell, we make a lot of these and we dedicate a lot mm -hmm. of our time to this and we wouldn't be able to do so uh, if we were, you know, without your contribution. So thank you to everyone, especially. You're mm -hmm. just great. Um, and uh, of course, if you like soap, and I hope you do, check on, check out, ugh. Check out Salt Cat Soap, our Etsy store where I and my wife and partner, M. Lampas da Silva, uh, are creating handcrafted soaps. They're, they're designed at home. They are uh, crafted uh, from the finest products available. And uh, they uh, they look gorgeous. Like M. Lampas da Silva is designing incredible, uh, I think, works of art in the medium of soap. And I hope you check them out. They smell amazing. Uh, they are they they feel amazing. I'm particularly mm. loving our new sh uh, line of shampoo bars, uh, which is shampoo in bar form. It's very convenient, um, and they they just make make my hair feel so much better mm. <laughs> than regular <laughs> shampoo does. Uh, but we also have a new line of lotions and bath salts. We have new stickers featuring Luca. Uh, new products uh, drop in the store on the first Saturday of every month, but we also usually drop a few surprise items in between those days. So check us out. Etsy, and we're on Instagram and Twitter at Salt Cat Soap. And um, that is that. Bye! Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Bye.